Ms. Ostapenko has no challenges remaining. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by Tumani Carriol once again. Hello, Tumani. Hello, hello. We are here to discuss the news that broke a couple days after the U.S. Open that clearly was held probably until the U.S. Open ended uh, to announce, which was the International Tennis Integrity Agency's independent tribunal, their finding in the case of Simona Halep, who folks will remember tested positive for the banned substance Ruxedustat at the 2022 U.S. Open, where she lost in the first round. After that first round match, she tested positive. Uh, months later, she was then tacked with a second violation for irregularities found in her biological passport, which basically tracks blood tests over time and, and found some uh, suspicious patterns there. The decision came down last week and handed Halep a four-year ban, a very long ban. The ITIA was pushing for six. She was obviously pushing for less, wound up being four. Halep still refutes these charges and says that she will appeal this decision to the Court of Arbitration for Sports. That will come months later. But this was a big blow and, and makes this, I think, the biggest doping case in terms of severity of the charge and combined with profile of the player, I think, in tennis history in a lot of ways. So we want to get into it and get into the details of this. The independent tribunal got into a lot of details, had a 126-page report that Tumani and I have both read, and we will try to synthesize for you so you don't have to read it. I'll get into a decent number of the details, but not all of it. As I said, Simona has denied this, but this is a very serious thing, Tumani. I think I think that's where I want to start first, just sort of setting the stakes for this. This is a, a felony sort of charge and conviction at this point yeah. in a way that really yeah. makes it clear when you read some of and, and the and the document isn't even as damning as it could be. It's it's weird. The tone of it is much gentler in a lot of ways than the tone of the Sharapova case, uh, which was the most famous doping case probably of the of the century before this. But Sharapova was a definite misdemeanor in comparison to what Halep is is convicted of here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Sharapova her initial case in, included the phrase she was the author of her own misfortune. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's certainly a more even-handed document, but it's also, I mean, it, it's difficult for her in its in its own way. I mean, firstly, just the fact that she's been found an in- intentional doper, essentially. Yes. That's a, a massive departure from really a- any, well, m- most prominent doping cases we've seen in, in tennis. Yeah. A lot of them have come down to a, a player or a, a figure coming up with an, a reason, excuse or whatever, and then the decision coming down to the degree of fault. And, and, and often those non-intentional doping violations begin from two years. Um, but four years is the minimum for intentional doping. And, and this is where she's at with, with two separate um, anti-doping rule violations, which is also both significant and rare. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's very complicated. And, you know, as, as, as we'll see, it's <laughs> there are a lot of details to it and two, two separate issues that may or may not be related. She basically got two four-year bans, essentially, that she's just going to serve simultaneously, not consecutively, as might happen in some cases, which will make it an eight-year ban, but two four-year bans that are be- overlapping in their timing, which, is, if assuming in the case that she doesn't win any appeals, would make it less time that she still has to serve this just four, four whole years, but also makes it tougher because in an appeal, she has to get both of them overturned. She has to score yeah. two victories at the Court of Arbitration Report, and we'll get to her, her chances with that once we go through everything. This, like I said, was a thorough document. We'll get to some of the people who aren't even familiar with the process at all. Basically say that the ITIA which is the again, Tennis Integrity Agency, essentially now, they took over anti-doping proceedings from the ITF. ITF used to handle this a bit more in-house. It used to be ITF documents in the Sharapova days. Now it is, in theory, a bit more separated 
but it still has a lot of the same characters who are involved. I just wanted to note that, of course, this kind of saga, I guess, began with Hannah. That's right. She mixed him up. She, she directed everything to the ITF. You know, her interview, I think it was with, with tennis majors. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was critical of them, and, and obviously they, you know, quickly made it clear that the ITIA made it clear that they're the organization behind this. Yeah. No, definitely. That, was, that showed some early... I can't tell. If, I don't think it was intentional. It just seemed like incompetence. And it's possible that maybe her lawyer was trying to make a point by saying this is all ITF, but that's the point yeah. is lost on most people and isn't really relevant to anything. To say that, yeah. you know, there are still a lot of ITF parts to this. I will say, though, I mean, we, we'll get to... I mentioned the cast, which is the Court of Arbitration for Sport a couple times. They have a tendency, not always, but often to give reduction to penalties. So it's almost sort of like this is the the court has often been in favor of the athletes. Oh, not always, because we saw this recently with uh, Mikhail Emer, who got a no punishment, basically, from the ITIA panel, and then had his, uh, the charge against him upheld by Cass. And so that, that appeal went the opposite direction. So we'll see how it goes. We'll follow back up on this in however many months it takes for Halep's uh, Cass appeal to go through. It'll probably be about somewhere between three and six months, I would imagine, usually. I mean, there aren't further complications, but part of the reason for the timeline in this case, which we'll get into, was there was another complication midway through the proceedings that a second charge emerged. Let's just sort of get to the the nuts and bolts of this case, of this decision. So the ITA has a three-person panel made up of uh, Nicholas Stewart, who's a British barrister, which is a fancy British word for a lawyer, uh, Peter Seaver, who's a clinical pharmacology professor at uh, Imperial College London, and then Amani Khalifa, who is an Egyptian lawyer who does a bunch of sports arbitration stuff, uh, notably for basketball as well. So these three people on this panel making the decision, reached a unanimous decision, and wrote up this 126-page uh, report. The panel is independent from the ITIA, right? Yes. In theory, both parties, ITIA and Halep, agreed to the composition of this panel. They both said this is a fair, yeah. fine panel. Now, there are people who, who have gone through this process who, who, in the past with the ITF, when the ITF was running it, I know, who disputed how impartial this panel was and said this, you know, essentially was an extension of ITF, but that does not seem to be something that Halep has really charged here so far in her in her complaints. One thing to note also, just in terms of the the stakes and the and the procedures, the and it's, it's also useful to have this transparency in this, because a lot of times we don't get this transparency in tennis. The standard that they're using, which they repeat this phrase throughout the document, is something called a comfortable satisfaction with with the ruling so it's not which is greater than balance of probability but less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt so those that's a question that comes up certainly in, in disputed cases is how convinced of guilt do you have to be and they say comfortable satisfaction so they are comfortably satisfied that simona did these things comfortably satisfied just sort of evokes like you know someone sitting in an easy chair relaxing with a pina colada they're comfortably satisfied it's, it's, it's a i hadn't seen that phrase in legal context before so i thought it was interesting so let's get into the case itself Halep uh, started, according to her, this is her story, and her version of events is both agreed upon and then also at times rejected in, in the in the story. But let's get to the, for the majority, they're sort of giving her credibility and benefit it out through a lot of this, including her doctors as well. We'll get into the disputes between her experts and, and the ITIA's experts down the road. Halep, by her account, started taking a keto MCT supplement company name redacted. We believe we know who the company name is, uh, but they're redacted in this. I actually reached out to them earlier today before recording to see if they wanted to respond to this, and they've not yet replied. Um, but she started taking this keto MCT supplement right before the U.S. Open, 
2022 after winning Toronto. She won Toronto. She went to Cincinnati, pulled out, uh, and then she started taking a supplement days before at the recommendation of her physio, who's named Candice Gauthier, who was recommended this by Frederick Lefebvre, who was a director of physical preparation at the Mortoglu Academy. Uh, Halep, as those who followed her in 2022, know, started working with Mortoglu and Associates early in the year and went all in on him. Had a, had a entire team revamp, including her representation, including her PR people, dumped everything she had and started over with pure Mortoglu team. I'll also note uh, that she tested negative for everything in a test three days earlier before this. So she had been tested as it happened very shortly before the U.S. Open as well, three days earlier, didn't test positive for anything. She loses. She plays her first match at the U.S. Open. She loses, and it's actually one of the worst matches of her career. I wonder, and that's something interestingly she didn't bring up. But I almost thought that might be a defense. Something like she was like performance dehanced, or something wasn't, or she wasn't feeling right, or something was wrong yeah. with her supplements or something. But she printed one of the worst results of her career in a shock loss to Daria Snigur, who was a qualifier from Ukraine, played awful in that match. Halep did loses first round. How it takes her urine test uh, after the match routinely. It is uh, po- it out positive for Roxadustat. The ITIA in the panel notes that Halep did not write down the supplement, the keto MCT supplement, on her doping control test. That's something that comes up. It also came up in the Sharapova case. Didn't write it down as a supplement she was taking or a substance she was taking. Uh, she also did not mention it in her apparently initial interview uh, with the ITIA. And it's possible also benefited out there that she didn't know what was contaminated initially potentially um but you are shaking your head at that i do just think it's i mean it's, it's a clear error i mean they, they in the panel um the tribunal describes it as that was distinctly careless of her especially at the interview when the need for complete openness would have been even more apparent i think yeah. it's, it's, it's one thing it's one thing if that she hadn't um, disclosed it um in the you know the regular do- doping test after losing in the US Open first round, but after you get that anti-doping rule violation and you're, I mean, you're already pre- surely preparing to defend yourself and make everything clear, it's, it's, a, it's actually quite a, a, a staggering, so, something to forget. And she, she said she probably just forgot it, but it's quite staggering, particularly as the story is that she changed her um, supplements right before the US Open. And it wasn't just keto mct that she changed she changed uh th- i think three different supplements like electrolytes and this and yeah but she kind of forgot it when it came to her interview with the anti-doping authorities which gets into the part which i was sort of saying about how much they do or don't believe halep like that that part kind of goes unchallenged this is her story right and so another very plausible explanation in their minds this is that she's this is not where this came from that this substance, Roxvestat, uh, the banned substance, is not something that was actually in this in this in this jar of supplements, and it's something that she acquired in some other way. Uh, Roxvestat, uh, for people who don't know, they decide in the or they describe in the decision is a legitimately used treat, medical treatment for anemia, but in sporting context is prohibited because it is a blood doping agent, which increases hemoglobin and the production of red blood cells. Roxvestat then increases the available oxygen in an athlete's body. It is, I found this out when I was first Googling it, when this first learned this word, uh, when the positive test news came out about a year ago, it is in the same class of banned substances as EPO. It's the famous one, most associated with cycling and the Tour de France and various things like that, uh, that just increases things. And, and blood doping is considered, you know, one of the most serious forms of, of doping and takes a degree of intentionality uh, in it. And that's what 
she is accused of here and convicted of here in this case. The other thing is that we should say in terms of the, the uh, contamination and such, it is expressly stated, this is from the document, that each player's personal responsibility that no prohibited substance enters their body. And it is not necessary to demonstrate intent to give a ban for something. So even if on the low end that Halep was taking this supplement that she thought was all above board, no ingredients listed, and it turned out it was contaminated with something that she didn't, that was in there that she didn't know was in there and that she didn't want in her system, she's still responsible for it. And she still would have faced a ban for that, even with that. So the baseline charge is pretty high. And we'll get to this when we get to Halep's complaints about the timing and stuff later. But Halep, even if this defense had been upheld on this first charge, was probably still looking at at least a year, at least a year of being off tour, right? So what she was doing, we can get to this now or later, I guess, now I keep mentioning it, you know, putting herself on the entry list for the U.S. Open this year never made any sense to me. I mean, she was going to be out for for a while. So the standard charge for a positive test for intentional dopamine with no, with no reduction is four years, and the ITIA wanted uh, up to six years. They said there were aggravating circumstances that showed her her greater intent that escalated this even beyond this, especially because of, of the kind of charge and then this corroboration that comes up later from the second charge she gets with the athlete biological passport. The biological passport, I can define that now. Uh, biological passport basically is a system that tennis has used for about a decade now that tracks levels of various metrics in blood tests and, and tries to see any patterns or any spikes, any irregularities in there. Both against both against the population and also within an athlete's own uh, personal history. I mean, as we'll see as as it goes on, you know, the the point is that over over the course of, I mean, the ten years, for example, that it's that Halep has been receiving blood blood tests for the, her passport. That profile becomes, you know, it's compared to her own, really yeah. only her own readings, only her previous, you know, values and recordings and readings, and and not the the general population, which is as we'll see what. Um, her team tried to argue in, in her defense after the anti-doping rule violation. So on Bruxadestat and the effectiveness of it, there I think some of the most bizarre things, which I will say early, because I think that colors sort of my, my opinions of this expert that Halep has early on. Halep and her side argue that the benefits of Bruxadestat and the red cell blood creation it would uh, enhance were not, quote, not significant for a tennis player, even at her level. And then her... Her doctor, her chosen expert, uh, whose name is Alvarez, late in the document, they quote Alvarez, who's a professor at a French institute, who said he was dismissive of the idea that a tennis player would gain any help from increasing hemoglobin because, he said, quote, in tennis, you don't need to have oxygen. What? Yeah, it's, it's insane, an insane quote. And, and, and I, I, I'm the same. It, it absolutely got in my... My judgment of him, and I mean, it. it def- I think it definitely hurts. I guess hurts his dances of yeah. authority. This is, and, and I think. I mean, it's certainly a, a common, I think, misconception even now that tennis is a, a skill sport and, and technical sport, and and that that aspect is you know what what primarily wins you grand major titles or whatever. But no, it's 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 physical. It's increasingly physical. It's you know it's long three hour matches and. And I mean, of all players in the world to, to, you know, put this argument out there. Simona Halep, the, the, you know, the, the player who, 
who ran so much trying to win her first Grand Slam title that she ended up on an intravenous drip after her Australian Open final yeah. in, in 2018. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's very silly. And, and yeah, it was one of a few moments that, that, you know, reading this document, you know, long document filled with a lot of legalese, you just kind of <laughs> had to pause and, and almost gasp at the just ridiculousness. Yeah. Really. So that was that was shocking. I completely agree. And there's also other people who've debated it. It's fun to debate in tennis sometimes. I think it's incredibly naive. Like, would steroids, would doping or any kind of performance enhancement even help a tennis player? And the answer is, of course. I mean, so many things that the drugs do. I mean, they help. There are bands in like chess and other sports, which are much, you know, much less uh, clearly physical than than tennis. For for people to say, oh, you don't need that. It's all about skill. One of the arguments I've seen is that the players who are the best juniors are also still the best through the pros, and that shows how it's about talent and skill over everything. But no, like in tennis, you need recovery, you need speed, you need to be able to get blood cells and get oxygen between points, during points, sometimes as well. And yeah, it it comp- also training, also yeah, training, training, lifting, making longer sessions, all these sorts of things. Physical strength matters. And we see that more and more in tennis. Tennis is becoming increasingly physical, especially you could say on the men's side, best of five if you wanted to. But on the women's side too, best of three is still these hours long matches. And a lot of the times they are decided by who's holding up better physically, who can keep running, who can keep hitting the ball as hard as they want, who can maintain their accuracy and strength and not cramp and all these sorts of things that various, this is where our substances yeah. are banned, right? It's not because they don't work <laughs> it's because they're believed to work yeah. not always proven to work but at least believed to work and that's maybe more meldonium question but there's no doubt uh in halep's case that roxadustat would deliver results i mean anemia medication is exactly the kind of thing you would use to increase the effectiveness of your blood to increase your performance that way we mentioned this in terms of alvarez alvarez is one of the experts brought in by halep's side and there were several experts also brought in by the itia side who's the prosecutors essentially and the majority of this document is about discrepancies between their findings, about different methods, different things they use, and how they agree or don't agree. And yeah. I think the document actually gives a lot of doesn't is in nowhere is nowhere near as dismissive about Alvarez as we're just being. They actually enter. They try to make it seem like it's a good faith disagreement between these two parties and sides, even though for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, Halep's experts find things that are favorable to her side, and the ITIA finds things that are favorable to. Uh, punishment yeah and I, I just add that i think that's particularly in in the the rocks that do that yeah. part of the document I, I think there's just more to discuss there's more arguments that are put forth on both sides and and debated and i guess to, yeah. to push it forward the first i think almost battleground is conflicting results on on whether the the sample um keto mct yeah. was contaminated or not which is the heart of halep's defense that it was contaminated, this product she she used. Yeah. On Halep's side, um, Professor Alvarez and the other, her other counsel um, tested um, samples of Keto and MCT. And in, in their tests, in their results, they reported that it had a, a small amount of um, Roxadustat. Yeah. Whereas on the other side, um, Dr. Agner, who was representing mm-hmm. the ITIA, tested the uh, Keto MCT with their own methods, which differed. And they yeah. came up with none. And so there's a, a large part of the document is just them going back and forth, you know, ex- explaining the methodology, both both of them criticizing the, the other's yeah. methodology and, and ex- trying to explain why it's wrong. 
that just that goes on for a while and it's i mean it's it's, it's from the beginning it's quite just striking <laughs> to see that the small fact of whether the substance was contaminated is such a you know which should not be the kind of thing that you would think would be contentious right so you get a powder and basically yeah, say exactly. is in using the same vessels the powder or same you know same source of this powder and say does this have this banned substance in it yes or no and the answer is mixed and they yeah like you said they they call it yeah. a, a head-on clash of the results in this report here which shows this immediate conflict and they don't really try to take a side decisively necessarily in the body for most no. of this the tribunal they come back to it later and one of the other things they did this testing that i thought was remarkable is that halipside had a woman a woman in her 50s who had similar uh, i guess height and weight to halip take the substance and test herself and they took 34 samples over the course of weeks i guess someone was taking this stuff and they took 34 samples from her and seven of the 34 samples uh, were positive for ruxodostat but only in a much much smaller range than the amount that hallett produced in her urine sample at the u.s open again something does not match here they, they call it a head-on clash in the report but basically, there's a fundamental disagreement about if purported source of this banned substance in this keto MCT jar is plausible or not. There is a head-on clash, but they, for the most part, sort of, like, they don't totally resolve that, but they kind of move on with it eventually, after finding many, many dozens of pages on this and, and have yeah. to keep going. And they continue way up that, you know, for example, they say things like Professor Alvarez's uh, positive results are, are no more probable than the other side, than the negative results on um, the side of the ITIA. Yeah, they didn't really come to a conclusion, although they accepted the possibility that the substance might be contaminated. But even on that, in that front, they kind of point out that it's it's still not relevant to their final judgment. But they they do conclude at some point, paragraph one sixteen. For anyone reading along at home in this thing, they say Miss Halep, Ms. Halep has failed to establish that the keto MCT was a source of non-intentional use of ruxodostat. We reach that conclusion without need, any need to assess the degree of practical likelihood or unlikelihood of Ruxodosta having found its way into the keto MCT at some point in the manufacturing process. And they also get into the manufacturing process. This is a a, a substance made by a small company, uh, the one we believe it is, and so, ingredients sourced from all over, including China. They they cast some sort of side eyes at Chinese manufacturing at some points in this. But yeah. also, I I part of me just thinks it's it's unlikely just because this is a very high grade substance, Ruxodosta, and why it would find itself somewhere where it shouldn't be just seems unusual it just sort of seems like accidentally finding a diamond in your mashed potatoes yeah and i should note at this point as they're going back and forth trying to justify the results professor alvarez also did a hair test yes strands on halep's hair and again lo and behold found a small amount of works to do that in the samples but in some way this somewhat backfired yes because it was it was found in brands of hair that grew between april and october again she says she started taking the keto M mct in august yet they found it in, in strands of hair that existed in april essentially and then and then that takes a, another turn um with, with alvarez arguing that the reason you know this was found earlier was due to her, her hair coloring and thermal hair straightening that caused the rocks to do that to move in her hair. And, you know, again, they, they argue back and forth over this. It, it ends up with, you know, this is completely aside from the case, really. But Alvarez then, you know, during the, while this is still being litigated, Alvarez published a 
an article in a, a peer review, a scientific journal kind of trying to underline this as like a, a breakthrough in mm. science, basically, you know, at breaking new scientific grounds. But the, the issue here is that, um, on the other hand, Professor Eichner at the ITIA argue that, you know, this this could also suggest that she was microdosing with roxaducet from at least from from April. And, and the tribunal kind of concludes that it could be equally ex- explained by either case. So yeah, this is this is a key key part where they sort of start making their own theories, where the prosecution sort of takes a theory that does not match up with Halop's story, and starts to and because things don't add up in Halop's story, so they say an alternative explanation of the results of this testing of the hair, um, which again, which showed that parts of the hair, like l- parts of the hair, further down, away, f- further from her scalp. So you have Halop has probably what like shoulder length hair, so at times. So like parts of it that are inches away from the scalp, which would have been created by her scalp months earlier than August 2022, had parts of this in the hair. They say an alternative alternative explanation of the results could be that Miss Halep was microdosing with Roxadostep throughout the period between April to October 2022. In fact, Professor Alvarez testified that test results were consistent with microdoses of Roxadostep. He conceded that, and that he could not exclude another explanation for his results was contamination during the entire six-month period covered by Miss Halep's hair sample. So that uh, is obviously very bad news for her, that they cannot rule out that she's been taking this stuff for months, when in her story, in her version of events, it was something that she just happened to slip into a new sample, a new, sorry, a new, a new supplement uh, for the first time mere days before the U.S. Open, and that's what caused her this. And, and a pretty shocking own goal in a way. Yeah. Definitely. She's the one, I mean, they made the, their tests were done to try to support her, but instead they raised this other, this other theory. And again, this gets to the severity of this, right? This gets to talking about over the course of six months, hiding it, obviously coming up with a, a false, potentially false story of where the substance came from shows a degree of calculation and obfuscation and things that are just very different than what any sort of tribunal in our experience is accused uh, one of these players of. Usually, usually the cases. You know, and not that they haven't been big, but I remember, like, for example, the Marin Cilic case came down to, like, disputes on the label of the supplement that he was taking or the glucose tablets he was taking about whether or not nicotinamide was the same as nicotinamide and if the label was written spelled differently in French and English and he bought it in France and there was some translation error there. That's the kind of ticky-tack stuff that was an issue for him. And then also if it was banned in competition or out of competition, things like that, that's the kind of things that was that case. Halops is, is not that. Halops is, here's this banned substance. We cannot verify, essentially, we cannot uh, confirm her story. Yeah. And and that's a, a much more damning finding. Yeah. So I, I, should, I should add, regarding the hair test, this also involved Pr- Professor Kintz, who, in, in a callback to previous episodes, was part of Richard Gasquet's trial and also con- conducted his hair test mm. when, when, he, when he tested positive for cocaine. So that was just a, a callback. But yeah, the, the, the crux of the, the issue, even if they accept that the Keto MCT was contaminated with Roxaducet, what, what is not explained is the amount and, and the concentration of Roxaducet in, in the urine, urine sample she provided um, after the US Open. Yeah. I think the ITIA's expert, uh, Professor Eichner, he, he presented two you know, realistic scenarios. One, one that was more favourable to you know, the, the argument that Halep's team was trying to create and another one that he kind of deemed more realistic but he essentially argued that Halep would have had to take 50 to 5,000 times the recommended serving size 
of keto and MCT in order to produce the concentrations that were found in her, her urine. And that's really where the tribunal ended up, even if they accept that the keto MCT had been contaminated with that it was still a, a tiny amount of a tiny amount in comparison a tiny concentrate i guess yeah. in, in comparison to the positive sample and so the, the question is where did all the other roxadusat come from they, they literally refer to it as the other roxadusat yeah. and you know and really um halep's team has no response no yeah. argument no reason to explain why the concentration was so high and that really is what this decision this first part of the decision comes down to yeah definitely they can't they cannot they cannot provide a defense that works and that's you know if she's innocent of this or it you know did not do this intentionally which she still contends that must be frustrating for she doesn't express that in any of her statements saying which is something that some people who who are convicted of sort of these max of, uh, punishments and doping do say they say look this substance i tested positive for i cannot explain this I don't know how this happened. I don't know. I didn't do it, but I also don't know. I don't have any answers for this. And that's something that at times when I've read these things can be believable, you know, if, because for sure, if I tested positive tomorrow for some chemical, obviously I'm not on this sort of, I don't have a dietitian and, and physio recommending me things and, and whatnot, but I wouldn't necessarily know, be able to trace every single thing I'd eaten in the previous 48 hours and all the packaging and everything for that. Like there are and if you should go to a restaurant and someone else repairs the food for you and things like that that happen, especially with players, you know, in South America where there's been issues with tainted beef and things like that, um, potentially causing positive tests. You know, these are these are the kind of things that, that are sympathetic, but Halep does not ever has not gone for that that defense at any point so far. So she's saying she knows everything, yeah. but just the, the math doesn't add up, basically. Yeah. The math's not mapping. And I should add that, I mean, a lot of the doping cases we, we've seen, particularly in, in tennis, players normally do have at least an excuse or reason or story, whatever you want to call it, to explain why it ended up in their sample. But then, And then it becomes about defining culpability and, and how much they're at fault. Whereas in this case, again, she has no reason. And that's why it becomes um, intentional. Yeah, She has no way of explaining where this significant amount of concentration came from no, no defense yeah so let me just wrap up the ruxedo set part of this uh, they they say in the state in the report our firm conclusion they, they say is that it's not realistically possible that the contamination of the keto mct as reported from the alvarez test which is the halop side tests could have produced the amount of ruxedo stat actually present in the players a and b samples collected on august 29th 2022 if Ms. Halep did use contaminated MCT as she describes, it could not have been, it could not have been the sole source of Roxadustat uh, detected by the Montreal Laboratory. If we apply the test of comfortable satisfaction to our conclusion on this specific question, we are at least comfortably satisfied. At least comfortably satisfied. They're, they're showing some confidence here that they are essentially rejecting Halep's uh, story, saying it's insufficient. Like you said, there's there's extra Roxadustat, other Roxadustat, bonus Roxadustat beyond what could plausibly be part of her defense. They, they say it follows from our conclusion that there was another source of either all or most of the Ruxedostat in the player's sample. In order to avoid the default sanction of four-year penalty of ineligibility, Ms. Hallett must establish unbalanced prob probability used for that other source was not intentional, and she does no such thing in her thing. So that's essentially why she gets the four years there. To skip ahead, we'll get to the punishment part of more in detail later, but that's basically how they wrap up the first part. I guess that the one argument that Hallett could have, and Hallett and her team could have in the future is which the tribunal recognizes is the kind of implausibility. If, if the tribunal does accept that 
the the roxadus that did contaminate the the sample the keto mct it's very improbable that there's was that she managed to have a contaminated sample of roxadus while also taking it from a completely different source yeah and, and they say in in their decision they, they say this they say we recognize that our conclusions involve finding of something which in itself appears highly improbable that around the same time in 2022 miss halep ingested Oxidista from two entirely separate sources. But they, they say that they are guided by common sense and logic, and on the balance of evidence, Keto MCT may have been contaminated, but they're also very convinced there's no other explanation. The concentration of Oxidista was too strong for that, that to explain it. Yeah. And, if, and, and also, they said if they had to disregard one of the two factors, either the Keto MCT or the other rocks to do so that, that there's an, another source somewhere that they they would disregard the first part yeah and and that's that's how they ended up it's all just a fancy way of saying they're not buying out story they don't it does not add up they, re- yeah. they reject it and and sort of slow and again not this this was a much more pleasant writing and much more detailed writing especially compared to the sharapova one which was at times seems spiteful uh reading that one yeah. for sure this one was nowhere near as bitchy as that one but at the same time had a much more damning conclusion and you know, wasn't bolded or, you know, wasn't all the time. You did have to read it and read it fairly carefully to sort of get the parts that were the verdicts and jumped out because it is a massively long document. Part of the reason the document is so massively long is that there's a second charge uh, that came up months afterwards. Halep was informed of her positive testing about a month after the US Open. This became public knowledge in October last year. And the months after that, they, she was flagged by people who monitor the Athlete Biological Passport Program, which report summarizes as a blood test result identified by a computerized algorithm as significantly out of line with the athlete's specific profile on key elements. And then a panel of experts monitored the three experts, and ultimately, all three found it uh, suspicious. There were some times where it took, some of them were quicker to run to this verdict uh, than others. Some of them were first a bit inconclusive, but then became conclusive. This is something that Halep picks on in her, her statements afterwards, saying that she thinks that this shows that there was some sort of uh, cabal working against her. But anyway, it, as early as December, the first uh, doctor, Dr. Merkeberg, reviewed it and de- described Halep's results as likely doping, which include also, likely doping in quotes is the verdict, which yeah. includes also tests that Halep took in 2022 after initial positive tests. So they continued testing her. Um, and she continued complying with tests afterwards they they target tested her yeah. after, you know after after the initial positive test there are two other experts as well d'onofrio and garvican lewis they you know were provided some details about halep they say not her name and that was not part of it halep i think is arguing that she she thinks that they knew that they were looking at the results of someone who'd already tested positive for a banned substance that might have colored their thinking they the panel refutes this and apparently all Experts' opinions pointed into a, quote, probable doping scenario around the 2020 U.S. Open when she tested positive. And so the other thing is that's key with biological passport is that it doesn't necessarily show, yes, she was taking roxadostat over this whole pattern of time. What it does is tracks irregularities over time and says something was going on. They don't know what necessarily. They're not saying, they're not being very specific, but they're saying it was either prohibited substance or potentially a prohibited method, meaning something like yeah. transfusions or things like that to cause an irregularity. And it is not necessary for the panel to identify precisely what happened. They don't need to, you know, be full, you know, clue that it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the knife. They can just say something was amiss here and that can be enough for their comfortable satisfaction verdict. They conclude ultimately that 
uh, the use prohibited method is a plausible scenario, and they confirm it is highly likely that the hemat hematological abnormalities in the passport are the result of illicit blood manipulation, either by use of a prohibited substance or prohibited method, and that the passport is unlikely to be the result of any other cause. The other thing that comes up, and then I'll let you go wherever you want with this, is that there's other earlier samples too beyond just this August 2022 date. They say are possibly erratic, including some as early as 2014, 2017, and even earlier 2022, uh, March 2022. But there is not always a consistent amount of data in the testing and regular testing. Hal did not get a blood test that was part of this program for five months before in a stretch of basically summer 2022. And yeah. so there was not, had there been more robust testing there, there might be different results, but there is this black space, which they're not holding against her. That actually maybe, maybe works in her favor. There's not more damning, clear things because we're skipping ahead, but the only result of hers that actually gets thrown out as a result of this is the 2020 US Open. Although they sort of suggest that a pattern shows that something was going on beyond this, they cannot prove that. Yeah, they, don't, they didn't have the data to do so. Just going back to the the panel and, and their decision, because Halep made, you know, in her statement, she made a big deal, deal about it. She said, the ITIA brought an ABP charge only after the its expert group learned my identity, causing two out of three to suddenly, suddenly, suddenly mm -hmm. change their opinion in favor of ITIA's allegations. But looking back at the, the process, you know, that the, this document outlines the entire process. And, you know, after the, the as, as you said, after the first doctor described it as, as likely doping, it should be noted that the other two said it was suspicious. Yeah. They, they didn't, you know, it wasn't... They never said nothing to see here. They never said nothing to see here. Exactly. And the, the regular um, process is that after that, that initial verdict, then the panel, as panels tend to do, they can convene and and clearly, you know, discuss and try to, if not come to a verdict, then share their own expertise on the subject. And and it was in that meeting and in the telephone conference on 12th of January that they were, well, they were first given more information. They, they had, had been provided with her schedule and then they learned of her, her identity and quite easy to then kind of see the, that, the, the well-publicised doping test and, you know, positive test. So, so the tr tribunals actually said that they expressed discomfort about the fact that the, the panel did know their, her identity, but they concluded that they're sure it, it didn't it didn't make a difference. They trusted the, you know, the professionalism of, of the, the panel and just the, the process, which is an integral aspect of the programme is that, that the expert panel jointly develops and may change or modify their views as they re review additional material. And, and that's, I mean, that's really what happened. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it's, yeah, they, they, they did check their opinion did change, but that seems to be part of the process. Yeah, they, they, they were sort of conferring and then they conclude in their April verdict that it is, quote, highly likely that prohibited substance has been used and it's unlikely the passport is a result of any other cause. Simona's side provided three reasons why it was possible for her biological passport to have these unusual findings. Uh, one of which was blood loss during her nose surgery, which she underwent after the US Open. Strangely, just for those reading who maybe had this question too, the nose, the word nose or nasal is redacted every time it comes up, even though this surgery of hers was public because she tweeted about it and she shared photos or whatever else. And this is, she talked about it before actually she got banned or before the positive test rather uh, was announced. Second reason that she gives is completely redacted in the report. We don't know what the second reason is. I've seen the speculation about it, but we just don't know what that is. And honestly, given the uh, theoretical overcaution about redacting this publicly known nose surgery, it could be something very minor, it could be something very major, sensitive, insensitive, who knows? 
just I don't think it's worth spending too much time with behind door number two, and we don't really know. And it's rejected anyway by the panel. The third reason she gives is detraining, quote unquote, this word detraining, which basically means that by stopping her full athletic workout routine after she was provisionally banned or just even shut down her season that that would cause some regularity and that's also also rejected yeah in in general her team's response i just found really very poor and maybe it's because they didn't have a response yeah but beyond those three reasons they, they came up with other arguments and for example that, that one of the big arguments and that is that they tried to argue that her athlete blood passport profile was always within a, a normal range for women aged um, 25 to 35, Halep's 31. And mm-hmm. and so it should have never been flagged as, as an atypical finding. And, and there are just similar arguments like that and continually the tribunal kind of shoots them down and with quite vanilla language, I guess, but sharply and firmly make it clear that, that you know, the, the, the arguments are wrong. It's quite, quite different from the first part where all of these arguments from Halep's team are, are entertained, whereas here it, it, a lot of the arguments are just according to the tribunal, just fact, factually wrong. Yeah. For, you know, there's another part where Professor Alvarez, Halep's expert, criticizes the bi- biological passport itself. He refers to it as unreliable, suggests that there, I mean, that there are certain things that can't be gleaned from the passport. And as long as you remain within the upper and lower limits of the previous pr- parameters, established parameters, then there should be no violation. But yeah, e- again, each time when he made arguments like this, he was shut down quite firmly. Yeah. And, and and again, as I said at the beginning, the, the blood passport it measures uh, over a long period of time, comparing the past information, past data for irregularities and, and, and how they evolve and, and not necessarily, well, certainly not comparing with other people yeah. outside of your own blood profile. It's purely in the column that is Simona Halep's column of results. That there, yeah. were, there were unusual, or to them, spikes in these things and this this is the part that i think is going to be tougher potentially for how to appeal because they say in the decision the panel that uh there's no realistic way to show this was not intentional quote the very nature of the athlete biological passport doping offense blood doping offense if proven means it's practically impossible for it to be non-intentional they give five scenarios they list for what might have caused this which were A, uses of microdoses of ruxodostat or another EPO. Number two, uses of an autologous or homologous, which are either player's own blood or matching donor blood, blood transfusions in addition to the use of ruxodostat. Three, the use of blood transfusion that contained low levels of ruxodostat. Four, therapeutic doses of ruxodostat or five, therapeutic doses of another uh, blood agent. And then the, basically, the thing that gives the, the panel a lot of leeway and ITA a lot of leeway is they're not required to establish which of those scenarios or any combination of scenarios or some other scenario to produce this result. Just, to, you know, or even say which is most likely. They just sort of find that it could have been one of these things and that's enough because something clearly, you know, was amiss. There clearly was a sort of crime scene here, uh, to put it that way. And you don't yeah. have to, again, solve the clue mystery of exactly who, what, where, when, why, how just the sort of the presence of the, the body in the clue terms and, and the blood in this, this case is, is enough. Yeah, I should add that these aren't just, you know, small deviations. Muckerberg, one of the experts, describes her um, Halep sample, sample 49 from the 7th of October as showing completely different blood from sample A, yeah. 40, from sample 48 in the 20, 22nd of September. As you mentioned, just to, to add again, a couple of them also recognised 
earlier samples from 2014 and, and 2017 as as irregular, possibly indicated um, or suggested blood doping. But they, but again, there's a lack of data. The amount of blood tests are irregular. I think this does actually show the necessity of the more more blood more tests, testing. Right? Exactly, and one of the huge. One of the biggest failures in this report, to my mind, is that there were no blood samples taken from Simona Halep uh, yeah. between April 2022 and August 2022. And this is, you know, Simona was one of the world's top players during this time. She made the Wimbledon semifinals. She won Canada. She was a, you know, reasonably good player on the clay. She was a former number one and Grand Slam champion who was still competing. And there's not data on this. Uh, yeah, it's a huge setback that she was theoretically, I mean, theoretically, you know, if you buy that she was cheating as the panel ultimately decides she, she could have been caught earlier than this potentially the right testing and kept out of tournaments like canada which she won you know they're only in the end charging her you know convicting her because of this lack of evidence a lack of data rather with this one isolated incident of 2020 u.s open so she's not getting her her title stripped from any from canada even which was even just a couple weeks earlier or from you know grand slam title she won in the past or being number one none of that is being we can talk about you know that and her legacy and whatever else with more evidence maybe there, there could have been but they were doing sort of the most they can with this with evidence and tennis players you know complain a lot about whereabouts testing certainly and then the amount of testing they get but this sort of shows the problem with with insufficient testing and it's only once they start doing this targeted testing after initial positive test uh, they were able to really build up a, a, a reservoir of of data that they were able to, to draw this uh, conclusion from any other thoughts on on the sort of those two those two charges and convictions before we move on to Halep's complaints and, and other things about the the result and what this means? I can't just to reiterate, um, as we said before, that the first the first charge was because Halep couldn't account for the other quote unquote other rocks of yep. that wasn't covered, even if you accept that the supplement she was taking was contaminated, and in in this case she just couldn't give it and an acceptable response to you know her irregular blood levels and you know the significant changes to them over a period of time and as i said a lot of the attempted responses were just unsatisfactory and dealt with very 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 firmly yeah a consequence of that is two four-year intentional bans yeah we got some questions on on ncr twitter that i reach out for and people some people asking some things i think we can and a lot of them we already answered so i'm going to not answer the ones i think we already covered um one question from volley fund meeting 68 uh as has blood passport evidence ever been used by ita before this could a case be made on the blood evidence alone or does sanctioning always require a positive test uh, for a banned substance and the answer i believe is no they have not used it before this is the first time this has actually come into effect but i do think you could do a case just with this I think this would be enough to trigger yeah, it. Sure, yeah. And the fact that it has these two different, completely different fields of of evidence in one more traditional way of testing positive in a urine sample, another way of this, you know, long-term blood triangulation, essentially, that adds to the weight of this. But either one could stand up on its own for this. But you're yeah. right, this is, this is, and Halep's team essentially suggested this, this is relatively new, still a potentially emerging technology, but at the same time, there was a lot of consensus. And at the same time, also Halep bought into the program. Halep participated in the biological passport program uh, for years yeah and, and that there have been you know n numerous biological passport violations in other sports yes. but this is the first in tennis and i, I should just add, I, I mean as we i think uh, well i want to discuss later this is rare this is not it's not normal that no. you have one anti-doping rule violation and then a, a few 
weeks later, a few months later, you have a second. I mean, we're going to discuss that later, but the point, I mean, the point of the athlete blood passport is that there may be methods that are so sophisticated that there's never a positive test. But over years, you know, over, you know, years of, of athletes giving blood and scientists and experts being able to review their blood parameters, there may be irregularities that they're able to act upon. Yep. So, yeah, I, I think the point of the athlete blood passport is that you don't need a positive test. Exactly. Um, let's get to how you talk about the extraordinary nature of this case, this sort of two pronged uh, conviction, essentially. And that was why this case took so long. I think it's fair to say. And the ITA says, ITIA says it several times and convincingly so. They say they had a, quote, demanding timetable to achieve, quote, the earliest feasible hearing date. And this had been a point of contention for Halep in the last few months, really her main and only point of contention throughout all of this was just the timing. It was taking too long, that it was unfair. A lot of protests about this. And they say in the decision, despite the players' repeated protestations to the contrary, Halep nor the ITA is responsible for the delays the determination of this case. This was uh, simply a very complex case that involved these two different things in terms of substance and procedure. And there was no more delay than we normally expected. And Halep had argued this also in, in a way to try to backdate the start of her provisional ban, only by a little bit, though. To me, even while this was going on, and, and more so after this conviction, this always read as Halep trying to muddy the waters. This always read as Halep and her team and whoever's doing her statements, we'll get into sort of the statements of this, trying to distract is something that she can hang on to. You know, the woe is me, I'm the victim here, and this is what I have to hang on because it's taking a long time. And it was taking a long time, certainly. I mean, Sharapova, I remember, got her initial hearing done, I believe, three months after she announced her positive tests, and after, which was actually about five or six months after she tested positive initially. So less time, but she also had a much more straightforward case. But within that window of, of the six months or so is when the second charge, uh, the second violation became clear to the ITIA, and they did this. And again, part of why this rings hollow to me is that, and it seems like a distraction tactic, and why this footage of her, you know, on practice courts that she was posting during this past summer of 2023 seemed like misdirection, was because even again, if she had gone for a no fault or negligence, no fault at all, like the zero zero part, uh, she was going to be out for at least a year, probably more. Um, and there was no scenario in which she'd be plausibly allowed to play the 2023 U.S. Open. So her staying on the entry list until the until the, until the U.S. Open finally kicked her off of it when qualities was starting so they could put Taylor Townsend in the main draw, that just that did not seem legit to me because there was no scenario based on her even her own defense best-case scenario where she was going to be just springing right back into competition. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, they, her claim that they were harassing her or violating her human rights is, mm -hmm. is outrageous. How do, you, how do you feel? <laughs> I feel the same. And should, I should note in, in this document, one of the first things, they, topics they discuss is, is this. They just go, not, not directly, but they go through the procedure and explaining the d d delays and, and how the hearing ended up, you know, happening so much later than planned. Reading through it, it it's very clear why. Um, I think her, her statements during this, this period were incredibly misleading. And so the first hearing was planned for 20th of February this year, but both <laughs> parties agreed to delay it to the 24th of March. The ITIA were notified of Halep's blood passport on the 24th of February, so a month before the, this hearing was supposed to take place, the Roxadusta hearing was supposed to take place. And, and naturally, they they, <laughs> they asked for a, a stay of the Roxadusta proceedings due to the this new potential yeah. um, violation. It, it didn't make sense to have separate hearings, yeah. Yeah, more time needed. They needed to investigate it. It may or may not have been related to the Roxadusta. 
and and that's kind of the same thing that happened eventually it was scheduled for uh, may 31st and may 19th again that was the 12 days before the um hearing was supposed to take place Halleck was charged with the the blood passport violation and again, you know, they, they needed time to investigate and build the case and etc. Halep's team, while Halep was complaining on, on social media and with, with her statements, Halep's team recognised that they needed to be litigated at the same time, as you said, but they she wanted it to go ahead for the 31st of May, 12, 12 days after the violation had been um, announced and published. I mean, aside from everything, it's an interesting just tactic from, from her perspective. You receive a, a second violation... And instead of, you know, making sure that you have the time to investigate it and, and make sure that you have a strong argument, yeah. you think you're pressuring and, and trying to rush through with it. I, yeah. I don't, maybe it's because they, they hope that maybe the ITIA, their argument would be diminished with so little time to turn it around. But yeah, I, I, it doesn't seem like there was any issue. And throughout this document, well, particularly this first part where they're outlining the procedure, um, the tribunal actually underlines that lawyers from both sides were assiduous and efficient yeah the deadlines for the itia were quote-unquote unfairly tight you know on both sides they were they did did extremely well to to turn things around at, at such short notice yeah. and and in the end the, just to, to add the, the final the hearing date in june and the itia had actually applied for a date in july and the tribunal had pulled it back and planned it for earlier and so yeah. Yeah, it really reading through it, my my conclusion was that this is a non-issue, and it's actually been quite, in a way, that the, the Halep and her team's decision to, you know, blow this up and and make such massive massive noise about the delays. It's been successful from a, it was successful from a PR standpoint in that she got support from people, from fans, from other players. But it just doesn't ring true when when you see it. The reality of this again, very rare situation where there are two anti-doping rule violations at the same time. Yeah, well, I want to get into that sort of the public perception of this as it's evolved at the end. And I just want to get through the rest of the document, which is not much left basically here to cover. Basically, we get to the punishment part of this, where they finally handed this ruling, and the ITIA wanted six years charging aggravating circumstances. The reason was that Miss Halep's blood doping was repetitive and sophisticated. The expert panel was clear that the stimulation was effective from at least March 2022 to September 2022, which is not totally, I mean, that's maybe a bit of a reach, but but they say she must have there, therefore been using more than one prohibited substance and or method on multiple occasions. They also say that Halep engaged in deceptive and or obstructive conduct to avoid the detection or adjudication of a violation. They also say that the timing of the blood data suggests that the blood doping was timed to provide the player with the highly oxygenated blood during Wimbledon of 2022, where Hallett made the semifinals, and then the U.S. Open. So that's 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 key. The uh, the panel ultimately rejects that they were reaching. That would seem like a reach. The March 2022 part, they say, although there are strong grounds for suspicion, we are not comfortably satisfied, to use the phrase, they are not comfortably satisfied that this is so. The sample that, again, this, this March sample, it was just not enough data, basically. Yeah, they didn't have the, enough blood, blood tests during that period, that four-month yeah. period to, to justify yeah. it. But they do but they do say, you know, they don't also rule it out. They don't rule it out either, but yeah, exactly. saying we are not comfortably satisfied uh, with that there. Yeah, I want to get to, yeah, basically just the, the, the rollout of this and other thoughts you're right that Halep's cause got a lot of support from a lot of people. And even some of a couple of days after this conviction was announced and maybe for the full, and I don't know how many, I doubt many players have actually read this 126 page document. And again, it's not one of those things where I actually like recommend you read it because it is really long and parts of it. Are, I hope, I hope that this was a substitute for reading this episode. So I'm hoping we, we did a 
reasonable job of there. But yeah, she got a lot of support and it was so fascinating to see the comp- the very, very different tone which the sort of tennis community took around Halep compared to Sharapova. But as we said at the beginning, Halep's, what Halep mm-hmm. is ch- accused of and now convicted of in this initial hearing, it would take a major, major reversal for everything to go away uh, on appeal and she will appeal to Cass and Cass does tend to be a bit favorable to uh, appellants, to people who appeal. People say they think it's because it encourages more appeals and keeps Cass in business. I mean, who knows? We'll see how that all works out. We'll cover that when it happens months later. But yeah, it just seemed like Halep was getting so much benefit of the doubt and so much sort of good faith uh, support from her peers, from her, you know, coaches, her former coach, Darren Cahill, you know, very supportive throughout. And he hasn't worked with her. So it's kind of a bit unusual for a former coach to, to be kind of stepping up for her but he, she had other people stepping up for her as well as you point out in your notes here to my he and Cahill does testify in this briefly and just sort of as a character witness which is fine but not especially consequential to the scientific based uh verdict here the ruling says apart from Miss Halep he has coached some tip-top players they say um but yeah but she got a lot of support and I'll just start there like why 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 was Simona Halep I think this is worth unpacking why was Simona Halep so believed why did people why are people so ready to to burn Sharapova at the stake but at the same time so willing to just you know pet Simone on the head and say it's all going to be okay you're clearly too precious and pure and innocent to have done this because that's kind of that's yeah. character that's a bit of a caricature yeah, but that's how yeah. it was yeah I mean I mean we, we know how, how tennis is in general in the locker room if you know if you say hi to someone you're your friends you're the nicest person in the world yeah, yeah your friends your best friend i really just just taking a step back we, we've both covered Halep's career since essentially she broke through in, yeah. in 2013 and and she's always been one of the most you know we, clearly one of the most pleasant people to i think speak with in interviews in the press room she's always been come across as honest about her, her story and her struggles and you know her difficulties and i think she's well liked in the locker room well respected for what what she's done on the court and just for being, again, personable and nice off the court and kind and all of those things. And I think all of those, that's kind of reflected in, in how players react to her and how players have been su- supportive of her. And then you compare it to Sharpova, who's quote-unquote not here to make friends in and out of the locker room, not, not, not even giving you a second glance probably at times. And the dislike and the hostility that has built up with things completely unrelated to the subject. And yeah. And so when this happened with her, there was a lot of, a lot of some, probably some satisfaction, some schadenfreude, some, you know, that, that kind of thing. The the smiles on some of her main yeah. rivals' faces. I still remember it well. 2016 in Annie Wells was the tournament right after she announced her positive test. And there were just some big smiles on some people who you would, the ones who you know don't like Sharapova or didn't like, haven't liked Sharapova for years. There was a great deal of schadenfreude with this. And and, and it's, it's a lot of people. Up until, we'll get to Serena in a second, but up until, you know, this final decision, the four-year ban came out, there was really no trace of that at all from the tour, from the players and from coaches, which to me just comes off, honestly, as incredibly naive. Yeah. And I understand waiting, innocent until proven guilty gets misused by people who are not in courtrooms all the time. And so people were holding out, withholding their judgment before, until this panel came out Fair enough, you know? Yeah, it's totally fair. But now the panel's come out, and I, and I still haven't seen that 
and I'm not obviously not covering the tour, you know, actively on uh, at these tournaments in San Diego and now Guadalajara, where some of the, although most players are not playing those tournaments, it's a very sparse field in Guadalajara on the women's side. Yeah, there just doesn't seem to be this sort of this, this acceptance that this is a thing, and maybe the people are in denial about it on some level because it's a it's a real case. And again, I just sort of I see that as naivete in a lot of people because I've been conscious of this since I first started covering the sport, certainly full time, circa 2011, 2012 that there's people doing remarkably incredible physical things for hours and hours on end by themselves and no substitutions with very little rest during matches. And even within tournaments, having to come back and play a day later or two days later routinely at these highest levels against the world's best. It's very different than a lot of sports where you get a lot of time off in between, even like soccer, you get many more days off between matches and there's only 90 minutes and so on. These people doing incredible things in the backdrop of world sport where there's, you know, all everything that's happened in cycling, everything that's happened in baseball earlier than that in terms of steroids, everything that happened in, in track and field, many other sports have been affected by by doping. And, and there's no reason why tennis would be an exception to that. There's no convincing reason that tennis is not pure, that tennis is not above that. Tennis is not a skill sport where it wouldn't mean anything. If anything, and I think Yannick Schneider said this in his Twitter thread about this, Tennis has way more at stake than cycling. There's way more money in, in tennis know, than there yeah, is in cycling. Yeah. There's way more prestige and fame in tennis than there is in cycling. There, there's a lot to gain. And and so the idea that someone would would break a rule, as as the ITIA concludes that Halep did pretty forcefully in this decision, it's just, mm-hmm. it just I don't clutch my pearls at that, per se. I don't think, like, oh, how, how could they sully the sport? Like, I... It's disappointing, 100%. And it's disappointing on a personal level, knowing Halep and talking Great, to Halep. Yeah. Hugely so. And disappointing for the sport, you know, capital T tennis, that this happens to one of the game's best players, a player who spent a lot of time at number one in the world, a player who won two majors and was a was one of the defining players of the 2010 decade. Actually, I think I didn't put her on my list. We did that. But, but Courtney put her high on her list. Anyway, <laughs> she was a very, you know, very, very relevant player and a very prominent player for a long time. And if you accept the worst case scenarios that the ITA is, quote, comfortably satisfied with here, that says that she was doing a lot of doping either at, for a time or, or for a long time. And they reject the long time part. They, they can't conclude that they're not comfortably satisfied with that part, but they, they're open to it. They, they acknowledge that it's a possibility. They just don't know. And yeah, I, I think that's a big, big, huge black eye for the sport, right? In this way that like, again, I don't, I think that the, the reaction to it has been muted on that side too. You know, and Sharapova was a more successful player by a bit. I mean, I think Halep spent more weeks yeah. at number one. And maybe, you know, it was sort of more of a week-in, week-out presence on the tour. Uh, Sharapova won five majors, Halep's two. But they're still both, you know... I mean, Halep was a was a lock Hall of Famer before this. I mean, she's someone who is... And that's a different question. She'll get Hall of Fame votes. We can, we'll get to that when everything... When, yeah. In years from now. But yeah, but this is a... A player who also was threat to win the U.S. Open in 2022. She was a contender to win that title. She just won Canada. She made a semifinals to the U.S. Open. Um, this was kind of her not quite at the top of her game, but certainly playing world-class tennis at the time that she is accused of this. So this idea that like that she wouldn't be capable of it again, not that I ever, not that anyone ever suspected her of this that openly anyway, before this positive test for Roxadustat emerged. But yeah, it it doesn't. I I I can I can accept this. I can believe this. I am I am ready to yeah. believe that there is that this yeah. is possible in tennis. That's where I'm at. I'm not in denial about it. I'm not saying this can't be. This can't be. It can be. Yeah, it doesn't really matter if you're the most pleasant, nicest person. Not at all. You can still dope. Yeah. Or have a moment, a moment, or an, or a long period of of trying to gain an advantage, and 
yeah, it, it does. That doesn't really matter. Yeah, uh, certainly, I think for a lot of people, that that's what it really comes down to. And and I mean, in general, I do think that people are also just naive about the the prospect that play, tennis players are doping. I mean, yeah. As as we we come back, we come back to that. I mean, we 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 discussed it before regarding Halep's expert, Doctor Alvarez, and suggesting that a player with high highly oxygenated blood wouldn't give them an, a, a great advantage. And I'm sure there are just there are other thoughts like that. I think we're very naive, and I think that not we, but tennis, and I think that the reaction would be extremely different in, in other sports, in, in in athletics, in cycling, yeah, in other sports. These things are anti-doping violations are, are more common, and, and we see even in this in this document how many examples of you know previous cases are are referenced from other sports, and this is that that's the reality for them, and I think it should be in a sport like tennis where there's so much on the line, and it's such a difficult sport, and and physically demanding. Yeah, all of those things. Yeah. A couple other notes I want to hit on here. Supplements. Simona, by her, if you believe everything Simona said, she tested positive, and she does not deny that she had rough stress in her system. So there's a base level of admission here, which, again, is why it was implausible she was ever going to get less than a year, right? Because she is admitting that she had the substance in her system. She's not saying it was contaminated in the lab or in the testing lab or something like that. There's not, that's not what she's saying. She, by her words, got this because she started taking a new supplement. Right, because she started taking a thing that had been contaminated days before. Yeah, I, I guess her, her argument is that the contamination happened back at the lab. At the production, production of the supplement. A production, yeah, yes. yeah. For, for, again, the, the the shade on the the Chinese, you know, manufacturers, and and that she couldn't have possibly had any idea she was taking, you know, yeah. a contaminated sub, I think substance when it. When for it me, the Chinese thing seems like a conven- yeah, convenient excuse in a lot of ways. Um, again, I just I, I don't know much about supplement manufacturing, but it doesn't seem likely that this would be cross crossbred like that. Anyway, part of me wonders just on a logical front, why is a player who just made Wimbledon semifinals and who just won Canada, a big big title, going in in peak pretty peak form into the US Open, why days before would you suddenly renovate and start taking a whole new batch of stuff and saying you're unsatisfied with what you're doing? How does that make any sense? And so this is part of supplement culture i guess in tennis there's a lot of players you know who have to reckon and athletes have to reckon with this that the more you're taking that is sort of unproven again this company if you look at this website and i'm not confirmed officially with them that it's them it's redact- their name is redacted in the report i think it's kind of strange actually the manufacturer is redacted in the report um it's a libel thing or what um, but i did reach out to them for comment and we'll let you know on ncr later if they do ever respond and and Halep actually said in her statement after the conviction that she is considering legal options against the manufacturer, which is fair if, that, if that's if that's true. I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see, right? ITIA said, rejected that that was the sole cause um, for, for this positive test, again, reminding you of that. Yeah. But why are, why are players always looking for every edge? Like, I think this is something that, again, should be looked at critically. You know, like, why are we dumping all these chemicals, if you're a player, into yourself, trying to get every single little edge and is this necessary and is there a way this could be curbed on an official level and this goes again not that he's been ever convicted of anything like this then he's never been charged never tested positive all these caveats the way Djokovic talks about the various substances he takes and stuff and the secret potions and magic potions and people you know hiding bottles as they make stuff in the stands it's just none of it's a good look I just wish there was more more transparency more openness uh, among players about what they're doing and I just I just hate the idea that a tennis match is won or lost based on what's in somebody's medicine cabinet. Tennis players clearly kind of think that can be a factor. They take this stuff seriously. They're looking for these edges all the time. And I think, if nothing else, hopefully, this Halep thing scares them into a life of 
fruits and vegetables. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 people are looking for that edge yeah. and, and towing the line, and it's I think inevitable that some people are going to bundle over yeah. over the line and you know end up in in an arbitration. And this is something I this is something I talked about with Sharapova because Sharapova, in her case, if you want to remember, it was very different. She was it was kind of the opposite. It was, she was saying that she had taken. Um, because Roxadus has been banned for a very long time. This is not a situation like Sharapova's. So in Sharapova's case, she was taking a Latvian drug called Mildronite, you know, chemical name Meldonium. She says for about 10 years before WADA added it to its banned substances list. And then at the very first time she got tested in 2016, they added to it on January 1st, 2016. The very first time that Sharapova got tested in 2016, she tested positive for it. So she wasn't keeping up with the rules. And there are people who were then talking about, should we consider it cheating what Sharapova did by taking the substance, meldonium, before it was illegal, doing something that's, quote, pre-illegal, right? And that's still a question. We don't know what players are taking currently on tour that might be deemed illegal later, right? If you're doing something, finding some, whether it's a method, recovery method, training method, injection, medical treatment, who knows what, or substance, just a classic old sort of supplement or, or new chemical that you're using to gain an advantage that something WADA has not caught up with yet or something that WADA has not done the studies on yet or something that, you know, there's just not enough data or, or evidence of it yet. Should that, is that still cheating? Currently, no. Currently, I mean, I think people are pretty black and white about this. If it's not in the banned substance list, it's legal and it's all good. And then it's just that very clear black and white thing. Once it gets added, it's happened to Sharapova. She was taking this thing for a long time. Um, she wasn't trying to hide it. She just basically ran into, and this panel believed her accounts in this case, she ran into a new wall that she didn't know had been built when the rules changed and the, basically her, her dispute was over whether or not how much responsibility she had to be totally up on these rule changes and to be taking the alert and, and again, in her case later, well, it's kind of relevant now, but I'll say basically for me, I wish the ITF and WADA had done more to alert athletes because there were hundreds of athletes tested positive for meldonium in early 2016. I wish they'd done more to be proactive about flagging people, athletes who had this in their in their tests, in their samples in 2015 to say, alert, alert, alert. By the way, if this remains in your system starting on January 1st, you're going to get banned. And they, to me, fell short of that responsibility to reduce the number of, of positive tests. And they had this cascade of hundreds of positive tests of people whom they all agreed were not knowingly breaking a rule. They didn't know about this rule. And actually, almost all of them, I think maybe even all of them, had lesser punishments than Sharapova in the end. Uh, because a lot of them were able to argue that they had last taken it in 2015 uh, before it was banned. It just had uh, it lingering in their system, which was various degrees of dubious. I mean, but but Sharapova came out with her, her own statement uh, in advance and sort of owned up to it in a way that didn't allow for that that defense, um, and which was honest. I mean, also, most, most sports don't have major tournaments at, at the beginning of the year where she obviously increased her usage in, in Mardonium at the exact moment that she took her doping test. Moving on, one figure we haven't yet mentioned in, in detail. Patrick. Um, he was he, 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 he appeared on, on an, in oh an interview for CNN God. as almost doubling as Coco Goff's coach, but yeah, there's you know, one of the prominent coaches. we got to get way into him, and, and he's even more relevant if, if you look at what the ITIA says about trying to trace this, this you know, spike in the passport to March. So, so Halep starts yeah. working with Mortaglu and Mortaglu's team in 2022. And this goes, and let's stick to Mortaglu part, but I will say also here, and this is something we got a question about actually from one of our listeners, whose name is, it's currently three 
hard eye emojis is their name on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> they say, do you think everything that happened in Halep's life, in parentheses, getting married and divorced quickly, changing her entire team, no surgery, doping is related in some way, or all those changes just happening so close together coincidence? And we should say, we'll be honest with this, Halep was a source of confusion and bafflement and what is going on with her for months before this happened. And one colleague of mine, you know, said, I think pretty tellingly, like when this news came out last October, asking him what they thought about it. And they basically said, I'm a lot less surprised by this than I would be a year ago was, was their answer because of just how erratic Mm -hmm. and how strange and how off-putting in a lot of ways, Halep's uh, conduct and the conduct of her team, uh, this more provided team was around her. And it was all very strange. And, you know, Halep went like all in and seemingly drinking the Kool-Aid uh, of the Moritoglu side and like gave over her social media. Her social media became filled with pictures of her and, and Patrick together. Her, the language of her post changed very clearly. It was really strange, bizarre behavior from someone who hadn't necessarily, I mean, I think Halep had, is, has a personality where I think she kind of did, does give over the reins to coaches pretty fully. Like, you know, Darren was very clearly driving the bus when Halep was, was his coach and, some players are just like that. Some players want to not make all the decisions and, and, and like the idea of someone else driving and, and doing, making the organizing things and whatever. And there's different degrees of this patient, especially WTA, we can say. Where ATP is a factor too, but where different players take different degrees of control of the reins of their of their teams and their careers, right? And Halep became on the extreme low end of this, where she just seemed to be letting Patrick do everything. She abruptly parted with some longtime uh, people on her support staff who'd been with her, uh, Virginia Ruzic, who is former French Open champion from mm-hmm. Romania, who'd been her sort of agent and manager, her PR person, Katie Spellman, got rid of both of them somewhat unceremoniously in this. And, and just, yeah, was acting strange and these pronouncements. And then there was a moment at the French Open, notably, where she was playing mm-hmm. uh, Queen Win, right? She was playing Jean uh, yeah. out on Simone Mathieu. And she said she had basically like a mid-match panic attack from all the stress around her. And... And then Patrick made this statement, like basically taking blame for it and put out a statement about it was just all like this. Why are you making a statement? What is going on here? Like all of it was strange and off-putting and, and weird. So that is to say things were weird and with Hallett before this positive test before anything was officially amiss. And then things continued to be weird after that. I mean, cause she's, as far as I can tell, stayed with this more toggly management uh, people. You know, she appeared on tennis majors, which is the more toggly his relationship with the website is not completely black and white, but basically he's friendly with the website. He was an early investor in it and they, and they trotted her out there, which I thought was a huge mistake of theirs, honestly thing. And it was bad journalism to the extent you want to call it that. Yeah. But, and then she has these statements she puts out throughout the year, which uh, were unhinged a lot of times with this erratic bolding, the, the bolding, I probably that's the last one on the show, but the bolding killed me. It just looked like, it, it, it looked like weird manifesto stuff, like just have this erratic writing and the, the erratic bolding of stuff and just none of it looked professional and strange. And it does co- coincide with Moritoglu, with Moritoglu showing up on the scene and including the positive test, which was, you know, from a substance was, was recommended by someone on her team and uh, provided it. It's, again, even if you assume that that's the truth, but certainly Halep had never yeah. tested positive before Moritoglu showed up and, and his, he, he, ripped his fingerprints all over her 2020 season and this is the result yeah i think he has a lot of questions to answer and they are not about coco golf <laughs> they're not about no, a player no. he used to coach and yeah that that was one of the more unanimous reactions on on, on oh. twitter seeing people reactions to the uh to patrick showing up on cnn this week which is great from the show and cnn should be having him on but should be talking about simona halep 
and his role yeah. as the coach of this player with this very, very serious doping conviction under his watch. So he absolutely has a lot to answer for there. Yeah, what do you, what do you think about Patrick's role in this? I, um, I'd, I'd add that, you know, you, you mentioned the, the panic attack at the French yeah. Open, and I was, it was interesting, just interesting. I don't know, maybe she did mention it, but it wasn't in the report it wasn't mentioned at all. And, and, and regarding Pat, Patrick, clearly this, this, yeah, this has happened in, in on, at his academy, on, under his watch. In, in, this, in this document, in this tribunal, he was one of Halep's, I guess, mm-hmm. witnesses and, and gave his own account and explained that he, he was the person who, you know, Halep, after Halep spoke with the physio and, and was recommended the keto um, supplement. She's, she went to Moratoglu and spoke with him and, and he agreed that it was it was safe to use, etc. And then another player of his was taking it also. Yeah. should also note that we've been critical of Halep's conduct just just in terms of the statements and, and all of that. And, and I mean, Moratoglu's been just as, almost just as aggressive, yeah. in, you know, in terms of his, his comments on social media, following up, repeating the harassment claims. And again, un, under, really under, undermining the rules and the, the regulation and, and how it's supposed to play out. And yeah, it just, it hasn't looked good on him. And I think questions have to, you know, now questions have to be asked about him. I'm, I'm curious to see about the players who, who do, who are still based at the Moratoglu Academy and, and have, you know, physios. And an obvious one is, I mean, Stefano Tsitsipas. Mm-hmm. Whether some of those players, Hogaruna, um, who, who actually just... Just broke, just broke up with Moratoglu, yeah. Yeah. If they distance themselves at all, or if they continue to, you know, continue as normal, even though one of, you know, his, his student has just been banned for four years. Yeah. No, and it, it's something that he should answer for. And, and when I saw about her statements and them being erratic, I believe that his team wrote them yeah. because they were taking over all of her. They clearly just like got her passwords on social media. And all of a sudden it was photos of them together all the time. It's all her content. Mm. And it was unnervingly all in and, you know, Svengali-ish, whatever you want to call it. It was just strange seeing this like total, this total, ad, you know, use of it. And, and not only that, there were also stuff in person, you know, like they... I'm guessing you experienced this too in during 2020 season. They were just together all the time, visibly everywhere. Everywhere, yeah, like they. I remember the one time them, the two of them sitting on the player lawn at Wimbledon, which is basically like the sort of behind the scenes for credential people at the sort of main intersection of of Wimbledon, and the two of them just sitting there at this table, like in this very very visible sort of central part, just like drinking coffee or something. They're sitting there for like more than an hour, if I remember correctly, and that may be wrong on that, but like just sort of on display. Like, here we are together, this is the thing, look at this, see how we are enhancing each other with this with this thing. And, you know, Patrick had only very recently stopped working with Serena Williams, basically when, when Serena's future was unclear in spring 2022, um, he kind of gave her an ultimatum and, and she decided, and he said, I want to keep coaching, but you're not playing, what's the deal? And then he started working with Halep as the full-time coach, not just, because previously Halep was with the academy, right? Halep went to the academy without having Patrick as the full-time coach. And how Patrick became the full-time coach at some point in that spring. Yeah, but it's just the, the behavior was strange. And and yeah, Patrick, again, the tennis major stuff, you know, I've done, disclosure, I've done panel, I do this sort of tennis uh, panel debate show with them sometimes it's called uh, Match Points, Match Point. And I haven't done it since this Halep stuff started. I messaged them being like, with the video message from Halep Brothers saying like, I can't support this. <laughs> like, this is this is nuts. And this is a bad look on that front. So hopefully they, they can come, come around on that because previously Patrick had had nothing to do with the sort of journalism of the thing. Basically it was like, he was in one of several early investors in it and it was editorially independent. And then, but this was a, a deviation from that in my mind. So I wanted to put distance for myself from that. I should mention that people in case people have questions about that there. Um, yeah. 
And yeah. regarding, you know, you, you mentioned seeing seeing them everywhere and, and the social media and, and clearly, I mean, to, to his credit, um, Moratoglu has, has done a very good job of, of using his, his coaching, um, you know, the, the players he's either coached or who have trained at his academy or who have been affiliated with him in, in some way to bolster his his um, profile and his credibility and his his prominence and I mean that's why I mean in in that CNN CNN tweet or whatever he was described as you know widely considered one of the greatest tennis coaches or something like that which I'm I'm not sure is how everyone thinks or but you know he he's done a great job of people people charitably call him including actually in the forthcoming biography of Naomi Osaka, in which Patrick plays a very essential role in the formative match of her life in the 2018 US Open final. It, it talks about him, and you can pre-order that book now, by the way. Link is in description. This has nothing to do with, this story has a little to do with her, but the link is still in the description, folks. Once again, for this book, you can read it. Tamani's read it, enjoyed it. Other people are reading it too, enjoying it as well. So wherever you buy your books, uh, Naomi Osaka, check it out. Um, it's, a, it's a fun, detailed read, and it gets into the details of, a bit on Patrick Mortaglu, and how he came along uh, in Serena's career, you know, and yeah, people charitably call him like an expert self-promoter. And there are other people, some other coaches in tennis who gets this label too, like Rick Macy's one of them also for the Williamses. Paul Terry had this also as well in his career. Yeah, that basically Patrick showed up on tour, which in the first season he was coaching Serena, with a traveling PR person with him, his own personal PR person, doing PR for him and his academy. He, he used Serena to really build his profile, and Serena had good results with him, to be clear. I mean, Serena, you know, started working with Mortaglu, uh, were some of the most successful seasons of her career, especially that first first bit. So the results were there too, but he made a name for himself and became much more known to t- casual tennis fans because of his work with, with Serena. And then he was trying to, it seemed like he was trying to continue that with Halep. Um, and and yeah, so so that's, I, yeah. I think I think he does have a lot of that. And also on Serena, exactly. Yeah. I want to get to Serena here. Serena and a bit of the reaction. Some of the, the couple people who were more critical of this or more sort of cynical about this and, and the, not the peers who were buying it were actually a lot of players who are not super active right now on tour. You're Nicole Gibbs's Jeannie Bouchard had a, had a tweet, subtweeting it saying, I, you know, I was told not to tweet today, which is allusion to previous trouble she's gotten in <laughs> tweeting about uh, Diana Yashemska and her own uh, cases uh, in front of these similar bodies. And then Serena, her husband, Alexis Ohanian reposted a photo of himself wearing the, the anti-drug dare shirt from when he was sitting in, in, Sharapova's box uh, at the, uh, sorry, excuse me, sitting in Serena's box during her first time match against Sharapova, the 2019 US Open, saying, I don't do drugs, kids, kind of shirt. Although he was wearing a jacket over it, which I give him, you know, take off points for the bravery there. And then, and then she, and then she retweeted that saying like some fashion is timeless or something, whatever she said. And then she said, I think eight is a better number, which people can pretty easily do the math on if she hadn't lost to Halep in that excuse me, 2019 Wimbledon final, which Halep rolled her 6262, then she'd have eight Wimbledon titles, not seven. Uh, and she'd also have 24 uh, titles overall. I I get the pettiness. I, you know, I think you and I have a, have a longstanding uh, support of pettiness as a general rule in the sport. But I got to say, if I'm Serena, and it's more, maybe more specifically a Serena fan, this whole thing makes me nervous. The whole, the whole thing about what Mortoglu being so central to the timeline of this story and Serena having worked with Mortoglu for so long, including tra- some training blocks at his academy. She did work with her own trainers and physios a lot, um, but she also did sometimes mm-hmm. work with his at the academy. And for me, it's just too close to home. It's too close for comfort seeing this Mortoglu stuff around. And Serena clearly seems confident in it. And again, she's not been accused of anything. But for me, it's just sort of like, I I don't think it makes anybody look good, this story. Nobody looks good from a major doping case at the top of the sport. No, 
and for me yeah if i'm if i'm if i'm a if i'm a serena fan i'm nervous about what what else comes out about more Toglio. and yeah just you know in, in 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 other sports where these things happen a lot when when a coach yeah exactly when, when a pl- when 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 a, when a coach is charged is is found guilty then Salazar or whatever yeah yeah exactly the questions about the coach and I mean what I was gonna say before is that he, he considering how he puts himself in the foreground so so much and and how much he if not demands credit then makes sure that he receives credit for all, all the positive things that happen in in his players' careers mm-hmm. and in this moment where his player has received two counts of in, intentional doping two four year two four year bans yeah. then again he has even more to you know, to answer for, I think. And, and this was this was not some scrub on a backcourt of his academy who happened to be at the academy. This was someone who was, again, with him all the time. They made this choice to align each other with each other and one another mm-hmm. with each other. And so he is fully, yeah. you know, as as you quoted Muguruza saying in the last episode, I think, we're here for the good and the bad, right? <laughs> so yeah. that's what this is. You know, if you're going to ride the glories of this and put out all these press releases about your success with X player... When this happens under your watch, this enormous, yeah, enormous felony level kind of charge is capital offense for for doping. In your first year, yeah, with that with said player, yeah, who who had never had any marks against her before, and you know they they point this out in this in the system. She had no no record of even wasn't a you know bad girl of tennis in any way. Simona Halep, there was no there was no previous reputation blemishes until until this, and so it doesn't help anyone that the start date of the when the doping that they that they are comfortably satisfied with uh happening uh started they don't know but that it is the earliest date they're kind of pushing in the in the aggravated charges was march 2022 very shortly after she started working with the mortaglu academy does not help the mortaglu academy it's not help mortaglu and there's just more you know once the appeals are done assuming she doesn't win somehow because i don't think she's going to win based on these cases we'll we'll see no. how it goes but i'd be surprised if she got any sort of major win something, something significantly drastic would have to happen and and as we kind of mentioned even if she made leeway in in one yeah. of of the counts the least likely is that to me it feels like the the blood passport she'd have to make get in two because she has two four year sentences yeah so that the bar is as, as high as i think we've ever seen for an appeal for a, a drugs man yeah to curse definitely so when that appeal is finished in this in this runs this course, I would like if there are people on there who have not been fully honest, whether they're Simona herself, whether someone one of her trainers, a manufacturer, whoever it is, supplier would like to see someone coming clean, right? Because basically this is someone who's been convicted of this crime, and again, we'll hold out a little bit of of daylight for the potential for the appeal to give a different decision, but we don't think that's from our non-expert opinions. This this leaves very little daylight for that. I think, and you know, even if there's a reduction of like a year or something, it's still going to be, which I don't think there would be even because they kind of gave the minimum for intentional doping, essentially with four years. They didn't give the aggravated six. So she could have gotten from six to four, I think, but I don't think she's getting below four. Yeah, I would like to see more, more honest, more someone coming clean about this, if that's the case, because it's instructive and it's important. And, you know, credit to the other thought I have reading this, credit to, you know, the doping agency's transparency on this. There's lots of things in tennis that don't have this transparency. Notably, match-fixing reports are almost never published in this kind of detail. They're almost always just a decision, and there's no PDF of this detailed decision. Very notably, I think, you know, uh, Zverev, Alexander Zverev, who was the subject of the uh, long investigation by the ATP's uh, third-party group. They said they hired to this, and it found inconclusive 
evidence, basically, um, and it's the first first opening accusation, or sorry, not abuse accusation against him, no doping accusations against him, first abuse accusation against Zverev by uh, Olya Sharapova ended that way. But there was, there was a report theoretically written uh, for that, but it was never published. And I just think it would add so much more credibility to the investigation um, if that was made public. You know, with redactions if you need to, but it would be this. They show all our work. We're able to talk about this episode for nearly two hours because of the transparency. I think transparency is a huge part of a good justice system in any in any context. And and so I I wish that this had happened in this rare case. I wish there'd been more transparency about it. And I hope that now there's a second accuser, uh, his his more recent ex girlfriend Brenda Patea, uh, who's, who has you know there's charges in, in Berlin courts about that now, and he's again denied. Uh, doing this. I hope that that kind of provides the transparency we didn't get uh, the first time. Because I just think it does a lot of a lot of good for comprehension. And I hope the people who are who are defending Halep still, if not read the thing, at least, you know, get the highlights. Yeah. And, and, and if you're, you're satisfied that your process is robust, yeah. then show your working. Exactly. Show, show how you came to this decision. It's, it's quite simple. One, th- one thing I did, I, I guess, I did want to touch on is, yeah. is the length of, of the ban. Yeah. Because, I mean, just, just it was interesting to see in response to the announcement of the ban. And even before that, you know, some people couldn't fathom a four-year ban. And, and I mean, I'm sorry, Americans, but there are a lot of people t- talking about, <laughs> you know, relating it to American sport and, and the, the way they handle anti-doping tests there. Yeah. You know, a lot of the American leagues have read, re- I mean, their, their, their anti-doping policies, I'm going to, quote-unquote anti-doping policies are um, collectively bargained with, with players, as I understand. And, yeah. and a lot of them are a lot shorter. You know, you, you, the players might be... I mean, sometimes it's it's a matter of games, right? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's often like... It's definitely not years. Very rarely years. Yeah. It's usually weeks, months, essentially, in effect, whether it's number of games you miss. In NFL, I think it could be like... Maybe something like four games might be a normal and like, that's kind of pulling a number of that's roughly in the range of it which is about a month which is about a quarter of the season but still but yeah but nothing like four years and i do think i do think it's a question you know is there is that is which one's better or worse i i i certainly think that yes a lot of the american ones especially nfl have been laughably low on this side baseball has had some low ones too and um, when you think about the sometimes obviousness of the rule breaking that happens in these leagues and the very clear steroids people are testing positive for in these sports but I also do think, you know, in certain cases where, you know, an athlete has, uh, can demonstrate, for example, uh, that they did take yeah. a, a, let's say, for example, that this had been a very different case, that Halep had shown that I took a supplement, I read the labels, I checked everything I could, there happened to be a substance mm-hmm. in it with none of my knowledge, and she would still get banned for more than a year. And I understand and accept arguments that that's too much for a player who has yeah. limited time in their yeah. career, and all players do, and especially someone in their 30s like Halep, you know, to do all the right things and check all the boxes. Because that's the thing with, like, you know, she she checked this with, in her story, and they don't dispute this, that she checked the ingredients with, with her trainers, with the other doctors at the academy. Like, she didn't just pull something off a, a shelf or a website or whatever and, and take it with no yeah. with no checking. And that's the case, too, for, like, for Marin Cilic, for example, did all this checking, went to, in his case, you know, the Croatian National Doping, Anti-Doping Organization, and, and cleared it with them. And they said, yes, this is fine. You can do this. Like, doing due diligence for sure and still testing positive i think that oftentimes the full year and sometimes more than a year bans that athletes get for that in tennis are too much yeah especially especially when when like the i mean in in, in a case like that where they found no significant fault right but then it's like a two-year ban exactly that's too much so i guess the low end can be but this four years for what is again for the kinds of language they use for the intentional doping sophisticated doping that they buy into and unexplained 
you know, more than more than she can account for doping. I get it. Yeah, it's serious. And, and, you know, this goes to sort of cynicism about tennis that we covered a bit before that has seems to be lacking among a lot of players, not all players. Certainly, I remember, for example, when um, I I never got published, actually, which kind of just purely shows the lack of interest in doubles. But when Robert Farah tested positive, who was the number one in Boulder doubles at this that. time, he tested positive for Boulderone. Which is Boldenone. Yeah, Boldenone, which is a, the substance that happens a lot. It was sort of South American beef cases. And that's what he tested positive for. Mm-hmm. And that was his excuse. It was tainted meat. And I think he wound up getting his sentence almost totally thrown out for that. But he was, he missed the 20, whatever that was, year 2020, I think it was, Australian Open, before the pandemic, I believe. My, my math is right. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he, and so I, I wound up talking to a bunch of players, the other, basically all the other top players in men's doubles for this story, um, which again, it's only not a huge story because of doubles. If this had been number one in any other context in singles, testing positive, this would have been a huge story, but barely got noticed because it was doubles. Um, so that's just a knock on the doubles relevance there hugely. And this goes also, there was also the whole Bethany Maddox Sands case, which got way less attention because she's a doubles player. That was a, a really serious um, case. People can look up the New York Times story I did on that and every, her whole saga and, and things like that and how that probably, you know, yeah. Anyway, we know, we know a lot about that case. But but basically, most people, a lot of people were sympathetic, and then a couple, but a couple of players who I spoke to, I'm not going to name them, because never got published. And I think I remember who it was. I'm not entirely sure. You know, we're very clearly not buying it from him. We're saying like, whoa, you know, it's enough to make anybody want to become a vegetarian. There were some very like mocking statements from a couple of the players who just weren't <laughs> having it. And that's kind of the case it is with almost any doping case. You know, there's a, a split, and de- you know, doubles is different, whatever. But um, yeah, I I I am not here to say that there's no doping in tennis. I'm not here to say that I trust tennis players with this thing. I'm not here to say that I think the game is clean. I'm not here to say that I trust the system. The system catches everybody. I think everybody in tennis probably thinks, and maybe not all, but certainly used to think, the system wasn't doing enough. People were getting away with it. And even if not getting away with it now, at least have gotten away with it in the past. You know, when you talk about and, you know, especially even, again, not to name any of them, but that's obviously a small group, and I'm, again, not using any of them anything. But we, we're in this era of, of historic accomplishments in men's women's tennis with all these players getting record numbers of everything. You know, multi, four players now uh, over with 20 or more Grand Slam singles titles to their name. This golden era, right? And I think those kinds of huge accomplishments should come with matching the huge scrutiny and examination and skepticism on some level to make sure of that because we're seeing these superhuman things and we want to make sure that there can be trust in the sport and something like Simona's case, you innocently want to think it's an outlier, but you don't know. You just, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. So, and there's, like I said, there's plenty, lots of reasons for a tennis player to do this. There's incentives there, cash and prizes uh, for winning tennis matches. And, and yeah. So I hope that this leads to, a more robust uh, blood passport system. I don't know how, what the kind of data is. If Halops was, I get the sense that Halops, they didn't make it seem like Halop missing uh, testing for four or five months, whatever it was, was that unusual. They weren't like, this. how did this happen? They were sort of like, oh, it was a gap. You know, but like, I wish yeah, there were not think... those gaps, for especially for top players who are making Wimbledon semifinals and stuff during this window to not get tested. I think that, I would like to see that changed. I understand that's unpleasant for players, um, you know, to have these tests, to have the whereabouts test, the, the intrusion in their lives, but I also think that it's it's worth it for the credibility of the, the sport. I think it's a potentially huge existential threat for any sport. You know, I saw what happened with baseball when the avalanche of, 
of steroid evidence started coming up about these players who've been huge stars in the sport. Same thing with cycling, you know, the Tour de France, the whole whole yeah. years of top tens wiped out and whole generations of, of results invalidated. And, and, and in the U.S. certainly, which only really, I think, I was mostly before I was born, but I think really only cared about cycling during the peak Lance Armstrong years because he was this cancer survivor with this remarkable story. It's never regained anything like its popularity during that time, cycling, its relevance uh, there. Uh, because of that that taint and that that taint for Americans certainly at least we don't care about cycling largely is still there. Like I don't think anybody trusts cycling as a sport in the U.S. to be clean. And tennis, from a cruel outside perspective, could get there now. You know, with these two huge stars, Halep, the most severe conviction, but Sharapova also being a huge star. There are questions to answer. There there are fair fair doubts out there about the cleanliness yeah, of this sport. Yeah. And yeah, uh, another one is is athletics as well. Where, yeah. Where, where you have, when you look at the the records in the hundred meters, and Usain Bolt stands alone almost as one of the very few, you know, fastest men in history who haven't failed a drug test. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we we don't know. And just the feeling too when you watch it when you watch a track meet and you see like new world record, like it's your thought like my thought's not uncomplicated. Wow, amazing! They did that. It's sort of like. They, they, they did that they, that's you know that's <laughs> yeah. that's how i feel and that's i haven't been without suspicions of tennis in times and so yeah I, I i want it to be i want it to be better so i hope that people take this as a wake-up call because this really is as it stands like i said this is huge felony conviction of a big big tennis star who as it stands now you mentioned the hall of fame i don't think i would not vote for her for the hall of fame after this given yeah. the stain on the stain on her and what she's accused of uh, without more mitigation that's again with her being a long time number one and, and otherwise shoe in first ballot candidate regardless um yeah i think this is a huge 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 uh stain on on her and and on the sport and it's disappointing and sad and it, no one's happy this happened um but it happened yeah it happened so thank you very much Tumani, for for being on here any other thoughts before you sign off I'd, well, I'd just like to shout out hot tub tubbing. Yes, well, let's wonder. No, they use the they use hot tubbing as a verb in this in this uh, thing to say they were to, 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 talking to many witnesses together, gathering a hot tub of doping witnesses. I thought was was cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess I, I, we, we've touched on it already, but I mean, we don't know. But what what do you expect from this ca- you know cast verdict um, coming now? Look, I could see them having questions about either verdict both because there are these two guilty verdicts right these two guilty verdicts in this decision two two but the odds that they find more or that how presents a different case there's a completely different case and there's i think you can prevent yeah. present a fairly different case at Cass and can start de novo yeah as a hearing yeah, it, it's, it's, i mean yeah it's, it starts from zero yeah it's, so it's but that but that being said like i don't think simona has much here and again i think that her her frequent focus on the timeline of the timing of these hearings betrays that fact. Like, I think that, you know, on the meat of this, yeah. on the meat of the case, she loses. She can, she can, yeah. she can cry. And I say that, you know, unsympathetically about how long it's taking and, and win people over that way. And people who should really be looking back at what they were doing and stop being so gullible because Simona was really able to set the tone of this conversation in a lot of the tennis Twitter public for a long time. And y'all should be better than that. Y'all should know, don't be so fooled. Like, again, maybe maybe I should have, I was thinking, I should have, back when I had access to my Twitter account, um, you know, maybe I should have been more openly skeptical of, of her. 
and, and called BS on some stuff and just said like, this is not, you guys, what are we doing here? This is ridiculous. Anyway. I, yeah. I think people, yeah. yeah. The, 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 yeah the, there's no doubt in my mind that her, her lawyers have, her, well, not her lawyers and her team and her ex, the experts have their work cut out. And, and I mean, as you said, I, I think she, I mean, the, clearly with the first case, with what to do is that, in, in, she has to account for the amount of, you know, of what's the that concentrated in, in that um, positive test, yeah. which she, she wasn't able to do. And then uh, from there, somehow, I think has to either, <laughs> it's, it's just hard, yeah, it either has to show that it, that, that was linked to the blood passport and that there's a direct link there, or, yeah, it's just hard. It's, there, there are two separate, um, violations that she, two four year violations that she has to re, you know reason with um, and, and come up with a, a sufficient um, excuse and, and reason for why she she committed two anti doping um, rule violations so yeah it, it's it's not it's not a good look no and, and yeah and it's yeah and just repeating again what, what you said it's, it's this isn't a good look for, for the sport and it just leaves you wondering if when the next There'll be another. another and the right? shoe dropping. And look, this is me. If I'm a clean player in this sport, I want to go out there and scream for more testing after this. I want to have this be, you know, much more available. I, I, I'm furious at this. I mean, she was, again, two matches from winning Wimbledon in 2019. Uh, sorry, 2022, rather, when, when during this, this possible uh, sophisticated doping time, according to the ITIA. And... I don't, I, you know, in all the talk about the various priorities for the sport and more first round money for, for losers or whatever else it is, I, I think this, this is unlike match fixing, which just gets lumped in with a lot of times. This is the one that can really hurt the, the tip top of the game, right? This is, this is the, yeah. this is the sort of existential threat to the top of the game. If when you have, we had this in men's tennis when Mariana Puerta uh, reached a French Open final in 2005, uh, lost to Nadal in that final, uh, but he was l- later found test positive. Uh, Peter Corda had this as well in 1998. He tested positive later in the year after winning a major that year. Yeah, this is the one that can really, again, we're in this time when the sport is built around these legends and, and, and moments. And Halep is not a legend, per se. Maybe in Romania she is, but not, like, worldwide. But, like, if if her stuff gets invalidated, it dominoes further. And, and yeah, it's just it's a huge it's a what huge threat. So, yeah, exactly. So it, yeah. it should just make everyone sad and nervous is my tone. So yeah. end your note on that wonderful anxious note uh there that's basically what i think so thank you very much jimani i think we're done and uh hopefully no sadness and anxiety in the rest of our worlds and we'll see y'all later bye folks uh, look 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 forward to talking to you on a, a lighter note hopefully too. maybe we can talk about my book naomi osaka coming out in january maybe we'll see bye folks yeah pre-order bye